You are now listening to the September 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. Since last week, we have been looking at Jesus' sixth sign, the healing of the man born blind. The text surrounding this event comes from John chapter 9. Last week, we shared some of the additional contextual information involving this event so we can understand it better. Firstly, we said that it was a continuation of the story from the last day of the Feast of Booths as recorded in John chapter 7. In verse 37 of chapter 7, Jesus tells people, If anyone is thirsty, they should come to him and drink from him. Then in chapter 8, verse 2, we see Jesus coming back to the temple and the story of the adulterous woman appears. At a casual glance, we might surmise things unfolded chronologically. The Feast of the Booths just ended, and the story continued to the next day with this story in chapter 8 and the story of the man born blind in chapter 9. However, we clarify that based on the exegesis of biblical scholars, the story of the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 is not an original part of the book of John and is believed to have been added at a later date. The storyline makes much better sense if we go from the events at the Feast of Booths in chapter 7 straight over to chapter 10 verse 21 and skip the body of text in John chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. We also shared two significant aspects surrounding the Feast of Booths. The first was asking God for water while wishing for the rain to come. This was to ensure a bountiful harvest of fruits such as olives, figs, and grapes. The second was waiting for the light that would shine in the darkness before the darkness deepened as the sun got shorter and the night became longer. For these reasons, People went and fetched water from the pool of Siloam and poured it on the altar in the temple as a drink offering. They also lit the temple with four large candle stands filled with olive oil during the Feast of Booths. Within this context, Jesus declared to those getting water from the pool of Siloam, which had the meaning of sent, that he was the one sent by God. He told them to come to him and drink from him. He also proclaimed that he was the light of the world to the people who were lighting the temple. Jesus was crying out to them that he was the one sent from God. This message recurs throughout the whole book of John. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 4, verse 34, that his food is to do the will of God who sent him and to accomplish his work. Jesus also proclaims in chapter 5, verse 24, that people who hear his words and believe in his Father who sent him to the world would not come into judgment. They would have eternal life. Jesus offers an answer to those in chapter 6, verse 29, that asked what they should do to do the work of God. Jesus says that believing in him who has been sent by God would be doing the work of God. Jesus tells them in chapter 6, verse 38, that the reason he came down from heaven is not to do his own will, but to do the will of God who sent him. He says in verse 39 that the will of God is to lose no one that God has given him and to raise them up on the last day. Jesus repeatedly says that he was sent by God in John chapters 7 and 8 during the Sabbath the last day of the Feast of Booths. 
This message that Jesus was trying to convey is translated into action when he met the man who was born blind. It occurred on the Sabbath, the last day of the Feast of Booths, in John chapter 9. Disciples inquired Jesus about this man born blind. They were curious whether the reason the man was born blind was because of the sin of his parents or his own sin. So they asked Jesus what the reason was. Jesus answered in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. After these words, he told him again, that he was sent by God, and that he is the light of the world, in verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus did something peculiar. He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to the blind man's eyes, and he said to him to go and wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. Verse 7 says that the blind man followed Jesus' words and washed himself in the pool of Siloam. He came out seeing. It seems like the blind person in John chapter 9 was a special case among all other blind people recorded in all the books of the gospel. When describing all other blind people, they were simply described as blind people. In the case of this specific blind man in John chapter 9, his conditions were highlighted as being blind at birth. What is even more worth noting is that everyone who appears in John chapter 9 knew that this man was born blind. Further, Jesus opened this blind man's eyes using a different method compared to how he healed other blind people. That is, he made clay and applied it to his eyes. Putting all these things together, we come to understand that in order for a person who was born blind to see, it would take more than just healing of the eyesight. That is because this man was born without eyes. That means he would need a new set of eyes. We realize then this truly is a miracle that a mere human cannot perform. Jesus said that the works of God would be displayed in him through the sign of healing the blind man from birth. We generally group God's works into two types. Both types revolve around Jesus. The first type involves a declaration that Jesus is God, the Creator. In the beginning, God created people with dust from the ground. On the day when Jesus healed a man born without eyes, he made eyes out of clay and applied it to the eye sockets of the man born without eyes. Jesus demonstrated that he was God himself by doing the work that only God could do. The second type of work God does is to let it be known that everyone is born spiritually blind. The only way for these spiritually blind people to see is through the grace of Jesus who is sent from God. Once the man born blind became capable of seeing, that created a controversy among the Jews. One group of people acknowledged this was the man who was born blind, while another group of people denied it and said he just looked like him. Then some people even accused Jesus of committing a sin because he worked on the Sabbath. He made clay and put it on the man's eyes. Yet others retorted a sinner could not perform such a sign. Jesus showed this miraculous sign that no human could perform. Jesus showed the amazing evidence that he was sent from God. But people saw all that Jesus did, yet they did not see he was the Son of God sent by God. Totally missing the point, they persecuted Jesus for not keeping the Sabbath. To those people, Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 39, that he came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him 
responded doubtfully and retorted whether they were blind. Jesus answered them in verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Those that believe they can see on their own are mistakenly thinking that they can see God with their own righteousness. They believe they are righteous and do not acknowledge that they are sinners because they believe they already can see. However, those that know they are blind know they are in the darkness. They seek the light. They seek to see. And Jesus, who came as the light to those who want to see, opens their eyes so that they can see clearly. The sign of Jesus healing the man who was blind from birth informs us that Jesus is the Son of God. He gives us, who were born in the sin and lived in sin, a new set of eyes and lets us know about the everlasting world. We pray His grace will open your eyes. This concludes this week's installment of Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is walking through hard times. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Open your Bible to James chapter 1. I want us to look at lessons we learned from Joseph, but they're New Testament lessons as well. There are lessons for us to learn from Joseph and from his story, and he can't help but look at his life and see there are a lot of applications of truths from his life to our lives. 
Joseph learned important life lessons through those hard times, and I think we can learn from his life. Just like him, we understand that there are lots of bad things that can happen. James mentions those in James chapter 1, verse 2, where James says, Count it all what? Joy, Joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, this next word is important, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Now, the last thing we think to do is that, right? When I encounter trials, hard times, difficulties, I don't, my first thing, oh, right, awesome. Nobody thinks like that. But the Apostle Paul says, consider all joy, count it all joy, and not just joy. The Greek word means joy to the max, Really? Joy to the max. The best. Consider all joy. Well, why? Well, get an eternal perspective, God is saying, because the stuff you're going through produces something. It produces. What we go through is not incidental or accidental. God has a plan for it, and as we go through it, it is producing something in our lives. And we see that in Joseph's life as well. The Apostle Paul also said something similar. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal exceeding weight of glory. I want us to look at just a few things Joseph learned from the hard times he experienced. And I think they are lessons that all of us can learn as well. So first of all, you note takers, and I love the note takers, they're my favorite people here. Bring a notebook, bring, use your device, but take notes. First of all, hard times remind us that we're vulnerable and fragile. I see that in his life. You see it in yours. Remind me that I am vulnerable, I'm fragile. It's okay. Don't be frightened if during hard times you feel that way. The Apostle Paul talks about that very thing. In your Bible, go to the left now to 2 Corinthians. Just keep going to the left. It's not that far away. Paul experienced something. We're not exactly what it meant, but he experienced being caught up to the third heaven, he says. And there he says, I don't know if I was in my body, if I was out of my body. I don't know if I was physically taken up. It was so real, he says, but I heard things so awesome. We're going, what, what, what? That I cannot speak about them. God told me not to speak. But God also knew there might be an issue with conceit in my life because of this. And so the Lord has taken care of that. Look at what he says in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. The Greek word here means a tent stake. (laughs) There was given me a tent stake in my flesh. This was a big deal Paul was experiencing. You couldn't get the tweezers and pull this out. I experienced a tent stake. Then where did it come from? What's the next phrase say? A what? A messenger from who? Satan. You see what that next part is? He gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. Now, God sometimes uses Satan to accomplish his will. You hear that? Now, we know an Old Testament example of that. Tell me who it is. Job, exactly. Job, God used Satan to afflict Job to accomplish God's glorious cause. And so the same thing is happening to Paul. God is saying, Paul, I don't want you to get conceited, and I don't want you to run into those problems and risk me having to set you aside in my work. So I'm going to allow Satan to afflict you. 
I'm going to allow him to give you a thorn in the flesh. No, you, Lord, no, no. Paul goes on to say, three times I beseech the Lord to take it away. Three times. Please, Lord. Please, God. Please, Lord. But look at what God's answer was to him. But, verse 9, he said to me, read with me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord says, no, my grace is enough for you. See, hard times help you realize that you're pretty fragile in yourself, that you're not as strong as you think you were. But in that place, God says, I'll make you strong. You know, where you're weak also might power. And people will look at that and say, how can that happen? And all the glory will go to me. That's what God is saying. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And he goes on to say in verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am what? Weak, then I am strong. We're vulnerable, and tough times teach me that. The trade-off for our weakness is the strength of Christ. Another thing I see as I look at Joseph's life is that the trials produced a freshness in his life. They do in ours. What do you mean by that? I'm saying there's a revival in our lives. The writer of Psalm 119, I'll just quote it. Psalm 119, verse 107, he said, I am exceedingly afflicted. You understand what that means. I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Revive me. Then David wrote in Psalm 138, he said, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. And there are other scriptures that say the same thing. In other words, trouble, revival. Trouble, new life. Difficulties, revival. What we see happening is a lot of times when we go through hard times, they bring us closer to God. Would you agree? Brings me closer to God. There's a tendency when things are great, and this isn't always so. I don't want to like globalize this. Let me just put it this way. I press into the Lord even more during tough times than I do when things aren't so tough. Would you say that's your experience too? tend to lean in to the Lord even more. And so there is this affliction, hard time, trouble, trial, and revival. And God wants to meet you there. God's not standing off and say, well, you know, uh, you're getting buffeted. You've got this messenger of Satan troubling you right now. No, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I have grace for you. I have strength for you. God may use hard times to tear some things down in our lives. In the hometown you grew up in, you may go back and visit and where this cute little cottage was. Now there's a high rise. I don't remember that. I've watched people bulldoze buildings and I thought, no. And then You know, six months later, I see something much greater than that ever could have been. Sometimes you see God's bulldozer coming your way. No, you want to tie yourself to your house. But you got to understand, God never tears something down without wanting to build it up. You know what I'm saying? He wants to create a new thing. If it's sin, he wants to bulldoze it. And where there was once the mark and the stain of sin, he wants to build it up, right? So don't despair. Troubles, hard times, they will bring a, a new life, a freshness. Then as I look at Joseph's life, I also see that his hard times gave him a greater freedom. 
He was not bound to what people thought he ought to be or who he might have, uh, they thought he should be or uh, bowed to popular belief or peer pressure. No, the hard times solidified him in being a right man, being a righteous person. You know, you see this also happening in uh, other people's lives in the Bible. And I'm thinking specifically of three young men that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. They are Daniel the prophet's good friends, and their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were officials by the time of this incident in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and the king called for representatives throughout his empire to come together, and he had built a huge image of himself. And he said, now I want everyone to bow down and show their allegiance to me. I want you all to bow down when the music starts to play. And if you don't, you see that over there? And there was this furnace fired red hot. And he says, whoever doesn't, that's where you're going to go. I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. So the music starts. Everybody's like, They're down on their face, except three young guys. Tell me who they are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Somebody says, they're not bowing. The king says, who are they? Oh, they're three Hebrews. You know, they're, you know, they must not have heard. So they explain them. These are the rules. You bow when you hear the music or you see that fiery furnace. That's where you're going to go. So the music plays again, and this is what these men did not do. They did not think, well, I'll bow, but my heart is still standing. That's what a lot of people would have done. I'm talking about believers. My heart is not bowing, my body is, but in my heart. No, that would be a huge compromise, right? Nor... Did they pull the the music plays, everybody bows, and they go, my sandal needs to be tied, you know, (laughs) right? They didn't pull that one either. Instead, they stood. I mean, you got thousands of people bowing, and they're like, talk about standing out from the crowd. Bring them to me, the king says. So they were out to the king, and he says, do you know what I'm about to do? To you, And they said, you know, we can't bow down to you. We can't serve you because of our God. And he says, what God is there who can save you from me? And they, they said, I'm paraphrasing. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from you, O king. How many of you believe that? Say amen. amen. Our God whom we serve is... But then they ended, they said, but... Even if he doesn't, we won't bow down to you. And a lot of us, we are into the, our God is able to deliver us. I'm mad, you know. But we leave out the but, even if he doesn't, I'm going to serve you. I will still serve him. You know, there is always the thought, God doesn't always deliver us from every bad thing that could happen to us. But even though that is true, we will not forsake him. We will not uh, show allegiance to the, you know what I'm saying? We'll stay faithful. So what happened? You know this, you know what happened? The Nebuchadnezzar had them tied hand and foot. So there's no way for them to wiggle out, you know. And he had them thrown into the fire furnace. It was so hot that the person throwing them in died, okay? So then he's watching. I don't know, is he waiting for them to scream? I don't know what he's looking in there for, but he's pretty says, wait, how many, how many men did we throw in there? They said, uh, three, your majesty, three? Then why do I see four? And the fourth one is like the son of God. Well, because the Son of God is in there with them. That's why. Here they are in the heat, Jesus controlling the temperature. There's nothing you can go through without Jesus in there with you, Jesus in control of it. He calls to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out of there. 
they walked out and he said, inspect them, inspect them. Not any part of their garment was burned. Not a hair was singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And they said, you know, paraphrasing, our God has saved us. And Nebuchadnezzar was in awe. You can't go through any hard time, any difficulty, guys, without Jesus being there with you. And you get a new freedom. And this is how I see this illustrated in their trial. The only thing, nothing was burned. That's not true. No, something was burning. It was the ropes that had tied them up. That's what was born. And they were loosed and walking. And sometimes, you know, what's binding you? What's keeping you from real freedom in your life? Is it a sin? What is it? Thoughts. Depression. What is it? These things tie us up and we can say, Lord, loose me from these things. Hard times don't have to destroy us. Hard times can really deliver us from the things that have been tying us up. I also see a lesson from Joseph's life that we can gain increased faith through difficult times. He didn't know, like I said, what was going to happen. He had no clue what God was going to do. He just daily stood the course. Most of us are not going to be called to do some great thing, all right? I can say, I'm going to say with 100% confidence with us, we're not going to become the second most powerful person in the world. But you know what God calls us to do? To be faithful to him every single day so that his plan for us will be fulfilled. Joseph didn't know what was coming down the pike. But God had him waiting. God had him on hold. Times when God has you on hold, they always have a purpose. God may have you on hold because he's preparing your place. Job, you know, we've talked about Job a few times. Job said, he knows where I am going. Yay. God knows where you are going. And when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. Wait and let God test. I also see that Joseph's hard times produced fruitfulness in his life. Do you know his name means a fruitful bough? Yosef in Hebrew means a fruitful bough or fruitful branch. His life means fruitful, and he was. His life produced amazing good things. Have you ever heard of controlled burn? Anybody? Controlled burn? Uh, that is when a fire, there is a fire and it's built for a reason and, and it maybe consumes acreage. And it's not wi- like the wildfires of California um, or you know, some other state. It's a burn that has a purpose. And the purpose really is to burn what's above ground so that the nutrients will go down and make the soil more fertile, right? You may be in the middle of a controlled burn right now. Maybe you're at the end of their field that hasn't had the fire hit it yet and you see these flames coming up to you going, ah, it's a controlled burn. God is in control. He would never set a wildfire in your life, ever. You believe me? God has this purpose. And in the end, your life will be more fruitful than ever. That is the promise of God. I read a story about an elderly man who had been imprisoned in the third century for being faithful to Christ. During this time, there are many uh, persecutions of the early church. You know, Christians thrown to lions. You, you've heard of these things and uh, killed. So he was thrown in prison and been there for decades. And he was chained 
to a, a heavy object, a, a ball, and a, had a chain around his ankle. And so he was in this cell, but even within his cell, his movement was impeded. After many years, the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. If you know your history, you know what happened. And he ordered all these Christian prisoners to be released. So all over different countries, Christian prisoners were being released. And he heard about this one old, faithful man. He didn't do it for others. But as the story goes, he told the officials, go find out how much his chain and that ball weigh. So they weighed it. And they came back to Constantine and they said, it weighs this much. And then Constantine said, now give him that weight in gold. What I see is there was a direct correlation between the suffering and the glory. God promises us the same thing. The apostle says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. What is your ball and chain right now? For some of you, it's very heavy. <laughs> Sorry, I just know what some of you are going through right now. What you are going through is not worthy to be compared to what is coming. Amen. God sees the suffering. And to make that weak analogy, as Constantine, God weighs what you have suffered, and he will reward you in the kingdom. He will reward you in heaven. Be encouraged. Be strengthened by that truth. You can't even imagine what is going to be yours for your suffering. James writes in chapter 1, I believe it's verse 12, he says, blessed is the one who endures under trial. For when he has endured, he will receive the crown of life. You hang in there under trial, the Bible says God will give you the crown of life. Incidentally, the crown of life is the same crown that the martyrs are given. A martyr is somebody who has been killed for Jesus' sake. They get a crown of life. You get a crown of life. Why the same crown? My thought has been because sometimes it is just as hard to live faithfully for Jesus as it is to die courageously for Jesus. Sometimes it just might be easier to die and be with the Lord than to live through what you're going through right now. It just might be, and God says, I see that. Here's your crown. Here's your crown. The suffering and the glory, they go together. We learn so many lessons from the hardships that Joseph has gone through. I identified with one or maybe two of them. How about you? And, and God's answers and, and what God is teaching us through these things. And these are truths we've got to hold on to when we walk out the doors. You know, my prayer is, God, just don't let us get distracted and forget what you've spoken to us. That personal word from the Holy Spirit taking the word and, and soaking it into our lives and transforming us. That really is my prayer. Lord, we are... We're glad for Joseph and for his faithful life. And we are encouraged by the truth that this momentary light affliction that we are going through is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be coming. And that with the suffering will come the glory. You will be faithful to reward your faithful servants 
Let us stand when we need to stand, bow to you when we need to bow to you. Wait when we need to move forward when it's important. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Praise the Lord for his word.
adore Him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we learned how Abraham was called at the age of 75. Then, 11 years later, he has his first son Ishmael from Sarah's handmaid Hagar. Abraham then had to wait an additional 14 years to receive his promised son Isaac. Because of this, we shared the story of how a life of faith is a life of waiting. Today, we'll see what happened afterward. I'll read Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. The last time that was said to Abraham, he was 86 years old. Now he has lived to 99 years old. It has been 13 years and Ishmael is now 13 years old. Now God has again appeared to Abraham. He introduces himself by saying, I am God Almighty. With God Almighty, all things are possible. The word God is translated from the Hebrew name for God, El Shaddai. This name contains the power of God. Why did God appear to Abraham again and introduce himself as Almighty God? God began by saying he's Almighty because he is about to do something that is impossible to the human eye. This is the first time in the Bible when the name of Almighty God appears. Almighty God said, Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. God said to walk before me, which means walk with me. Do you remember the prophet Enoch in the past? Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. This is what God is asking Abraham to do. God said, Walk faithfully with me like Enoch. What are some characteristics of a person who walks with God? Have you thought about that? We are careful with our words and actions when we are with our pastor. We're nervous about showing our bad side. When the pastor is in the car with us, we make sure to drive carefully and not use any bad words. Enoch lived in this way. He walked before God. If we realize that we are walking before the Lord who is with us and looks at everything we do, then our lives will greatly change. This is not saying that we should live in pretense to try to look good before God. God wants us to be blameless. The Hebrew word for blameless is tamim, and it means without flaw. Tamim is a word that can be used to describe a sacrifice without any flaws. Therefore, blameless and flawless mean the same thing. It means when seen from the outside, there is no flaw. To summarize, God is telling Abraham to live a life without flaw. We must remember this because the purpose of this program is to see how God is molding us as we see how He is molding Abraham. Since Abraham is our father in the faith, the things that God asks of Abraham are things God is asking of us. God said to Abraham, Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 says, 
but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Our goal is to stand before God as a holy person without blemish and free from accusation. If so, how can we live this kind of life? In Genesis chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. God changed Abram's name, meaning exalted father, to father of many nations. Abraham is a 99-year-old elderly man. The only son he has is Ishmael, who was born from Hagar. It is impossible to become a father of many nations through one son. However, Almighty God said he would do the impossible thing. Here is Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God is reminding Abraham of the promise he made when he first appeared to him. God is making Abraham remember it again. Although 23 to 24 years have passed, his promise doesn't change. Maybe 23 years ago, that promise might have seemed possible. However, time has passed and Abraham knows his ability. He knows that he doesn't have the ability to have another son. Therefore, in verse 16, when God said he would give Abraham a son through Sarah, verse 17 says, Abraham fell face down, laughed, and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? The same thing happens to us. As we live our spiritual lives, most of us realize that it is by grace we have been saved. It's because as we live our spiritual lives, we realize how much of a sinner we are. When we first met Jesus, we felt guilty after one or two sins and we were thankful for forgiveness of our sins. However, as we live our lives, we realize how pitiful we are before the weight of God's word. At first, we delude ourselves by thinking God saved us because we weren't so evil. However, as our faith deepens, we think, instead of giving up on someone like me, how could God save me? And we deeply give thanks for his grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Apostle Paul says he is the worst of all sinners. Also, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he calls himself a wretched man. As his faith deepens, we see him asking more and more of God's grace. We are also the same way. We must self-examine our faith. Do you believe you are worthy to be saved? As your spiritual life lengthens, are you struggling with your deeply rooted sinful nature? It is at that point when you come down to the place of humility and confess that there is no hope besides the grace of the Lord. After reminding Abraham of the promise, God says this in chapter 17 verse 9. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. What is the covenant? Here is verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you the covenant you are to keep. God told Abraham to walk before him faithfully and be blameless and to be circumcised. Some people may misunderstand this as the condition for the promise. They may think God meant, if you walk faithfully and be blameless and be circumcised, then I will greatly increase your numbers and make you into a father of many nations. As if it was a contract between two parties. If what God is asking now of Abraham was a condition for the promise, then he would have been hiding something when he first called Abraham in Genesis 12. God first gave the promise to Abraham without asking anything of him. Now, why would God say, I'll do this for you, so you must do that, and if you don't do that, then I won't keep the promise? However, there is something we must remember. The promise made to Abraham in the beginning was God's unilateral promise. We shared this last time when we learned about the covenant of the blood. There is nothing Abraham can do in God keeping his promise. It's not a promise where if a human does well, God will keep the promise, and if a human does wrong, God will not keep the promise. 
If it was that kind of promise, then no one will receive salvation. What God is asking now is not a condition to fulfill the promise, but He is asking of this as evidence of receiving God's promise. In other words, if you believe my promise, then show me the evidence of your faith. Let me summarize. God told Abraham to walk before him faithfully and be blameless, and for him and his descendants after him, for the generations to come, to be circumcised, not as a condition to fulfill the promise, but as a sign of faith in believing the work God will do. This is the same for us. There is nothing we can do in having our sins forgiven by the cross of Christ and becoming a child of God. It is entirely the work of God. It's not about God saving us when we do well and not saving us when we do wrong. If we have received God's grace and we believe the promise of salvation, then we must respond in believing that truth through our lives. Therefore, we don't live by following God's word to receive salvation, but we live by following God's word to prove that we have received salvation. In the age we live in, when we try to live by following God's word, we are treated as being legalistic. However, if we received God's grace and became God's child through Jesus Christ, then it is natural for us to live according to Jesus' word. It is not being legalistic. We must surely remember this. Next week, we'll learn more about circumcision in the next story that follows. I'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Joy to hold it.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.